Well, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 237, as we continue our series, How to Hunt Mule Deer. This is actually going to be the last feature episode of the series, though we do have a couple bonus episodes coming this week as well. But in this last feature episode, our guest is Robbie Denning. The topic with Robbie is Beyond Spot and Stalk. So as we've talked about mule deer, we've somewhat focused on high country mule deer, mountain terrain, earlier parts of the season, and we wanted to speak with Robbie about what other tactics, what other options are out there. So as you get into later seasons, different types of terrain, there's other tactics beyond just glassing, spotting, and stalking. You can get into ambush and still hunting and tracking, and that's what we speak with Robbie about today. Robbie is the author of the book, Hunting Big Mule Deer, which you can get a link to in the show description, and he has spent decades hunting mule deer. As we talk a little bit about at the beginning of the show, he actually gave up hunting other species just to focus in on mule deer. Not only is he an incredible hunter, he's a great guy, someone that we love talking to, and we were excited to share this with you today. As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. You can always reach us with any questions, comments, or feedback via email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. Here's our conversation with Robbie. Well, Robbie, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. Thanks for joining us, man. You bet. Thanks for thinking of me, guys. You know, you know hey, hey, here's a fun fact. The first podcast I ever did was you guys'. Oh, that's really? right. Yeah. Yep. That's first well, one I, was, I ever did, man. I was just going to mention that you were on previously, but it was quite a while ago. I was going to have you guess, Steve. What episode number do you think that was? I, it was early on. I'm going to say like top 25. Oh, good. It was 18. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I actually I, remember something. That's kind of impressive for me. <laughs> that is impressive. Yeah. <laughs> that must uh, mean that Robbie has a lasting impression. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All I remember is I didn't even know what I was doing. My sound was horrible. I had to lean over and talk into the computer microphone for like an hour and a half and i was so <laughs> stiff by the end of the podcast i was like man i gotta get a microphone <laughs> <laughs> well none of us really knew what we were doing at that point in the podcast and uh we kind of still don't but hopefully we figured out a few things in 200 plus more episodes here so um yeah if you guys want to go back i mean we'll we'll probably cover some similar topics but um you know if you want to hear more from robbie after listening to this episode just go back to that episode 18 it was great robbie we Talked a bit about your book. You have a book called Hunting Big Mule Deer, How to Take the Best Book of Your Life. Um, I'm sure quite a few guys are familiar with you, but you know we we pick up new listeners and even, even newer hunters all the time. So just go ahead and kick things off with kind of an introduction background and um, help listeners get to know you a little bit before we dive into talking mule deer. Yeah, you bet. Um, I released my book in uh, 2015, so what, about five years ago this month. And it was just a compilation of 25, 30 years of hunting big bucks and, you know, what I learned and what I did right and what I didn't do right. And, you know, prior to that, and it's still going, it's, I had started a blog on rockslide.com. So if you go to rockslide, you'll see the blog there. That blog is actually me. That's where all my articles are. And so um, I had written, gosh, I think at that time I'd written over 200 articles on mule deer. So I just thought, man, I have a lot of content here. I just started putting it together in a book. It only took just three, four months to get the book together. And um, so for, for those of you that have bought it and read it, thank you. For those of you that are not sure, 
about it, at least go to Rockslide and, and check out my blog. I just released an article on there yesterday. I think I'm over 300 articles now on you know, almost all of it, mule deer, at least mule deer gear. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a great way to stay current on what I'm doing. Um, but yeah, if anybody wants to pick up the book, you can get it off of Amazon. And, um, you know, I think on the theme of this podcast is, you know, the number one technique, and I agree with this for, for mule deer in the West, it's, it's pretty much glassing. You know, you got, you got to, you got to be good with your glass and, and spend a lot of time with it. But, you know, I, I ended my book with saying I, I had to get beyond just glassing to start doing really well on big bucks. And we'll talk about why on this podcast, but, uh, that's, that's kind of the theme of the book. There's a lot more to it than just get high in glass. You know, that's kind of the, the mantra these days, which, which is good, but you can do so much more than get high in glass. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, we've, as part of the series, we've been covering those things, right? We've talked about scouting and glassing and locating a, a lot of times via those strategies. So I'm excited to dive in with you and figure out well, what are the other ways to skin this cat? What are the other ways to kill a mule deer? Um, one unique thing about you, Robbie, I don't know that I even fully realized this, but I, I heard at some point, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but you pretty much exclusively hunt mule deer. I knew that you were a big mule deer guy, um, but you essentially, you know, with a limited time and all that, you just decided to focus on mule deer. When did you kind of make that change and kind of why did you just strictly go, I'm going to kind of give up chasing elk and other critters and really focus on mule deer? Early 90s, probably about 1990, 92, somewhere in there. And it's funny, I get that question asked on a lot of podcasts. I guess that's interesting to people. Um, but but yeah, and it wasn't out of anything more than, you know, I loved elk hunting. I, I loved archery elk hunting. I really did. That was that was just a hoot. Man, nothing nothing more exciting than, you know, chasing a, sneaking a, up on a bull in, a, in the timber that's bugling and, you know, moving cows and, Gosh, just that's just, that stuff is fun. But what what ended up? Oh, and, and plus, I love steelhead fishing too. You know, if you, if you grow up in Idaho, you you know we've got some okay steelhead fishing, and you know, I, I just bear hunting, all that stuff. I loved it. But what what I found is, I, I personally think. Now, let me qualify this. I don't want to sound high and mighty here, but I personally think public land mule deer. If you're going to focus on four year old and older bucks, and you're not wealthy, and you can't just you know, buy the, buy the ranch access and the tags, which I have no problem with anybody doing. But if, if, if you can't, if, if you got to do it off of your own back, you know, create your own opportunities. Um, it, it, it's the hardest, it's the hardest one to accomplish, I think. And that'll ruffle a few guys feathers. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying elk are dumb or anything like that, but man, I see, I see a 320, to a 340 bull, usually multiples every single year, even on public land. And, and, and even though I'm not chasing them, you know, I'm like, you know, they're around. And, and to me, they, you know, anything, 320 seems to be around in numbers to me. Well, you know, you start focusing on 180 inch bucks and, you know, that's about that class of bull. And man, I only see a couple of those a year. And that's just with intense focus on them. Um, and so, so I kind of realized back in the, in the nineties, man, if, if I want, if I want to shoot any, any more than just a few big deer that I luck into over the years, I've got to focus. And, and, and the other thing too, you know, I, my dad real close with my dad, he just always noticed I was just burning myself out trying to do all this, you know, like, Oh man, elk hunting next week. And Oh, I don't, don't want to miss a deer the next week. I mean, I was just running myself ragged and, and he, he just, you know, just kept telling me, 
you know, you're, you, you need to focus, son. You know, yeah. pick what you're going to do or, you know, do less, whatever. And, and, and so that, that's kind of how it all came together. And, 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 you know, I think I've had, you know, one bull elk tag since then. And, you know, I had a chance to, to, to go on a hunt and I hunted two days and just couldn't even focus on it. Um, <laughs> you know, I, ju- I just, it just felt like I was, I was spending time and, and energy. Energy is the huge one that nobody yeah. talks about. You know, people tell me all the time, oh man, I wish I had your, your time to hunt. And I'm like, yeah, dude, but you know what's, you know, what's the, at the premium, even if you, even if you got 20, 30, 40 days to hunt a year, it's your energy. I mean, and, and that's why I always go back to the DIY guy, man, I'm still working two and a half jobs, to keep this house running. You know, I, I, you know, all the things a guy has to do to you know, take care of his family. I got to do all that too. And so, you know, at some point you just don't have the energy to do it all. Mm-hmm. And, and so by focusing on deer, it just, it just gave me a fresher, um, energy to, you know, get out there and do it. I, I you know, I still get burned out. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, I, I, it's, it, it, I just do a better job than I used to when I was trying to do everything. I think it's good. It applies to a lot, to be honest with you. I, I feel that struggle in terms of wanting to do more than I'm really capable of uh, just because of time, right? Like there's other things I would love to get into, learn about, experience. And it's like I find myself doing that same thing of, whoa, 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 like step back. You can only do so much. You kind of got to focus, at least for now. And there can be seasons to that stuff. But mm-hmm. uh, I think it's cool that you've, you know, figured that out and dedicated it. And that after, you know, 20 plus years of doing that, they, you know, I know from talking to you these days, you're still just as passionate about it now as you were then. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you. And you know what? I honestly, I think, I think even more, I think I'm even more passionate about it than I was back then. Um, and, and I'm not saying I would never hunt elk again. I'm not saying that at all. You just mentioned, you know, there's, there's seasons in life. Yeah. I mean, my son's kind of interested in elk hunting. I don't, I mean, I'm not going to tell him no, you know, I, you know, he needs to experience that he's 14. So, so, you know, it's not that I'm not going to do that stuff, but I'm just, if, if, if you're trying to pull something out for your listeners, if, if you're wondering why you're not killing big deer, and you're, but you're spending just as many days hunting all the other species that are out there. You just might take a look at that. Maybe, maybe that's what's, maybe that's sucking up some energy and some time and money. That's the other thing too. Hunting yeah. is expensive, you know? And, and, and so that was part of my decision too. You know, I was spending a lot of money trying to hunt all the other species too. And even outside of deer season, like, you know, I used to love to hunt turkeys and, um, God, it was fun and everything. And, and yet, you know, I, Back when I was on a really tight budget, I'm like, I can't just spend 500 bucks in, you know, May to go turkey hunting all over the place. You know, I was driving clear to Northern Idaho to go do it and stuff. And so I, I guess just, I just, I just tightened it up and I'm glad that I did. So as we begin to talk about getting beyond glassing and getting beyond kind of like early season, high country, spot and stock type deal, um, let's, let's first talk about the, the, the year. Let's talk about the season. So, um, you know, Getting into October, obviously, we're getting past some of the archery seasons, uh, the early archery seasons, I should say. Let's just like hit from a high level. Um, what do you see as like changes throughout the year through the fall and how do those relate to different hunting opportunities and tactics just for especially guys who might be, you know, newer to mule deer in general? Well, you know, when I grew up, you know, rut hunting was widely available you know, a lot of states offered it and even on OTC tags. So that's kind of, you know, what I grew up around is, yeah, you just wait, wait for it to get late and snow and that's the good deer hunting. 
And it is. That's still one of the best times. It's partly why it's so hard to get a tag now during the rut because the uh, older bucks are vulnerable. Sometimes that's about the only time you see them is during the rut. Um, but as they clamp down on the seasons and everything, I had to start looking at uh, you know, earlier opportunities. You know, archery. I started hunting archery mule deer right about then, early '90s. I think about '93 or so, and you know, an old wheel bow and you know, 200 feet a second, that kind of stuff. Everybody thought I was crazy but man Dwight Shue was doing it and I thought man <laughs> this can be done mm-hmm. and um so as I started as I started focusing on the earlier seasons and obviously scouting I, I that's the other time of the year I see the biggest bucks is you know when they're when they're in, in summer mode you know their velvet's growing you know various reasons that they're more visible you know bugs and you know tender antlers you know whatever it is, is oh and plus it, it's a lot easier to spot a big buck when he's hanging out with 17 other bucks on a side hill um, so I just, I just kind of learned how to hunt all that early season. And so I, I, I break the fall up or break the season up like this, and, and this could change. And if I do another book, I want, I'd like to really get this nailed down. You know, mule deer hunters are about 50 years behind the whitetail hunters. I mean, they know to the day on the calendar, what bucks are doing. You know, you can find articles and blogs and October 7th hunt this way, you know, October 9th hunt this way. You know, I mean, and, and, and I think that's still kind of all developing with mule deer. So I'm looking at it on a you know big mesocycle here that from, from right now, that article I re- released on Rockside right now, I think they've, they've grown about 80% of their, their antlers right now. So you, you can tell what's going to be a, a good buck. And so, you know, from right now until Hardhorn, which in, 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 you know, from about Flagstaff, Arizona North is roughly... September 10th, roughly. You get below that, it can get all weird. You know, you get bucks running around on October 30th with velvet on. Um, but you know, these northern these northern deer, about September 10th, once they rub, they start to change, and and they're still visible. They're still on their summer range. They're still pretty much in their summer patterns, unless there's a hunting season open with more than just a few tags. But that that from right now to 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 hardhorn that's when I'm really looking for them and checking all my spots uh, from the past. Cause you know, that's one good thing when you start building your experience base is you can start focusing on, on areas, you know, that have produced and it doesn't matter if it's an OTC tag or draw tag. It doesn't really matter. It's just like big bucks go to certain places. And so I start, I start going through those areas and it takes me, you know, five, six, seven weeks to get them all looked at. And, you know, I, people ask me how much I scout. I don't know, 20 days, 30 days, somewhere in there probably. Um, it, it's hard to count because some days I just I just run up to a place that's real close. I scout for an hour and, I, and, I, and I'm done. You know, so is that a day? And, you know, other places I just go one day and I put a trail camera there and, you know, I don't come back for a month and a half. And so is that 45 days? I don't know. So, but I put in a lot of time is what I'm saying because right now is is, is the time to be inventory and those, those big deer. And, um, and, 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 and once I've, I've got, I'm really only looking for one, one in a good spot. Um, and what I mean by that is it, it doesn't do me any good to find one, you know, off a, you know, the fall Creek road up here where there's going to be 6,000 people driving by in the next month. You know, everybody's going to see him. Everybody's going to be hunting him. I, I, I just try to ignore those bucks. They just distract you, you know, you know, but try to find a buck I think is going to stay in that summer pattern, and then and then I then I then I 
I, I probably doing all the stuff you were talking to, to South about, you know, trying to get eyeballs on them, get a stock in, you know, multiple stocks, because that's usually what it takes. And, 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 and that's my focus. But then once we get to Hardhorn, and um, let's just say that's September 10th, and then, and this is roughly, just rough estimates. This is where I say the whitetail guys are ahead of us. Um, maybe around September 10th, Hardhorn to roughly October 15th, when, when either the migration starts, because in some areas, you know, those deer are going to migrate according to the calendar. There's documented cases in the West of deer. I think it's in the Wyoming range of like an average date of like the 8th of October. They start pulling out of those, those, those summer ranges and, and, and moving through transitional ranges. And so roughly October 10th, 15th, somewhere in there, um, they get out of that summer mode and it, it just gets a lot harder to find them because you, now you, you, you just don't know where their home turf is anymore. Um, there's exceptions to that. You guys, I have seen bucks, you know, just staying in their summer mode clear until it snows in late October. It's, it's just, there's not a, there's not a tight formula there, yeah. but I, I gonna, do go ahead. I was gonna ask the question. Have you noticed, say you're hunting a big buck and you get a really good late September storm. Are you nervous that he started moving or do you feel confident that they'll kind of weather that storm? Cause it's not, you know, middle of October yet. Usually they're going to weather it, and usually I'm flipping totally excited if I'm getting snow like that because that first couple snowstorms, especially if it's high country, just seems to knock the crap out of those deer. They just are, you know, it hunkers them down. They're, you know, I don't know if it confuses them, but they're, I mean, they just start coming out weird hours of the day. They're easy to spot. You know, I, mm. I love those those first couple snowstorms, and plus we'll talk about tracking too. That's some of your best tracking opportunities right there. That first first couple yeah. of snows you know, and the ground's not frozen and, and the snow's not frozen and, you know, it's their first snow and, 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 and they're pretty short tracking jobs because they're on their summer rains or not, they're not migrating or they're not chasing does. Tracking is, is totally different, then. totally different and way harder then. But yeah, that first, that, that big snow in September, it doesn't usually move the deer. Um, we have to make some exceptions to this, you guys. I know there's some, some guys that are hunting Colorado, you know, 12,000 feet. They're like, Hey buddy, these deer are gone by September 15th. Okay. I get mm. it. I, I did totally, you know, but Colorado, some of that New Mexico stuff, you know, you're talking deer that are summering at 12 and 13,000 feet. That's, that's almost like a sub herd. You know, that's, they have to do it differently. Um, um, you know, they're living in, in Alpine country that can get, you know, very severe weather. And, you know, the way I understand it, the plants just die even faster at those elevations. you know, they're getting frost and, you know, sometimes mid August, um, and, and you know, just different things are affecting those deer. So, so that's why I'm saying there's not a tight and hard formula for the West. You kind of got to think about it. And so, um, so those deer, those deer could totally be transitioning, you know, even in some of these guys are telling me even like mid September, you know, they're transitioning out of that summer mode, but you know, for most, the rest of the West, you know, where the, the high peaks are more like 10, 11, nine. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm not usually worried about those deer leaving until we get a good push of snow or the rut. But again, that's why you need to know your deer herd. There are exceptions to that. I mentioned the Wyoming range. It's been documented. Some of those deer are moving. It could be the 12th. I can't remember, but it's a pretty, it's, it's kind of at the beginning of that time frame. Um, 
43 over here in Idaho, central Idaho. Some of those guys that know that unit well. If and 43, and let's see, that's the OTC unit, and then 44 is the draw unit. Um, if you look at 44, it's got a September 15th opener on it, and 43 has an October 1st opener if you're willing to hunt with a muzzleloader. Well, talking to people over there, they're like, well, it, you gotta hunt them, man, or you, you, you just start losing so many of your deer out of the unit. Steve, you've probably heard that before, haven't you? Mm-hmm with those units. And so, so that's what I'm saying. There, there's not a tight formula and I don't want, I don't want to confuse somebody because, because they'll go, Hey man, I, gosh, I saw this buck in like September 28th and man, I was going to smack him. It was going to open on the first and he's just gone. You know I mean? Well, that stuff can happen. Usually they're not gone. We're just not finding them, but, but that's why you just kind of need to know your dynamics of your deer herd. And, you know, and, and that's why biologists, especially old ones or, or young ones that know the old ones, that, that's why they're such a good resource because, you know, they understand the mechanics of, of that particular deer herd in that mountain range that may, may be moving for whatever reason where the deer 50 miles away are, are not doing that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Robbie, because I was getting ready to ask that exact question, thinking of guys who are coming and you know, maybe they're out of state, maybe they're new to the area. They don't quite understand those dynamics, uh, or don't have the opportunity to, to witness that or have prior year experiences. It seems to me like, you know, trying to get a hold of a biologist from fish and game or something like that's going to be one of your best resources. If you're really trying to understand, okay, I got, you know, say an October tag and I'm headed into a new area or a new state can I expect them to be in summer patterns? Are they going to be in transition area? When does that happen? Um, is that kind of a getting a hold of that biologist is going to be one of the best things you can do? I do it on any, any, any new hunt or maybe any hunt I haven't been back to for a while. I, I always try to call those guys and, and, you know, but I talk to a lot of hunters too. And, and, and some of them are like, well, I talked to him. He didn't really give me any spots or it's like, oh my gosh, you guys, it, 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 it's not about the spots. All right. You need to go figure that out on your own. If it's about the spots, we're screwed because then everybody can just post the spots on rock slide and everybody's going to end up in the same place. No, right. learn your deer herd. In fact, it's great to me when a biologist isn't really talking about spots because then I know he's not just concentrating the hunters in one, in one place. And guys, mm -hmm. I, I used to volunteer for the fishing game. I heard those guys on the phone. I put it in my book, phone call after phone call after phone call with these pushy hunters that were just pushy. Just, you know, come on, you're holding out, dude. Tell me where the big ones are. I know you know. And like those guys would fold like a deck of cars and just start spewing out drainages. But I'm thinking you just told the last guy that same place, you know? And so, so talking to a biologist to me, I mean, yeah, if he says a place, great, I'm going to note it, but I'm also going to remember, he probably told 15 other guys that place too, mm -hmm. but man, just learning like, we're, you know, this, this podcast is more about, you know, after summer mode mule deer, you know, kind of learning more about what can I expect from that deer herd. That's your piece of the puzzle because that's really what we're trying to assemble here is a great big puzzle. It's got like 500 pieces and, and, and maybe it's got 100 pieces. And a biologist, yeah, that's one piece of the puzzle. But, but you, you don't want to ignore it. Your puzzle's not going to be finished if you don't have that, right? Yeah. And so it, I think it's worth it. And you guys, I just spent three weeks chasing a biologist you know, on, a, on a hunt that, I, that, I, that I've 
that I've scouted before. I've, I've scouted it three times in the last 10 years and I finally drew it. Um, and, but I haven't talked to a biologist about the hunt in like, like four years. Cause I haven't scouted it in four years since 2016. So man, I, I got a hold of him. It was worth, it, it was literally a three week chase trying to get a hold of this guy. Um, which tells me that's even better because he's out in the field and he's, he's doing stuff he's supposed to be doing. He's not just sitting at the desk answering the phone. I don't want the information officer when I call, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. sometimes that's all you can get. But it, it, so anyways, I, I talked to the guy. He didn't tell me anything earth shattering, but you know, it kind of got me up to speed. This is what we've seen the last few years. This is how fires affected the unit. This is kind of our hunter demographics right now. You know, just, just, one more piece of the puzzle. So yeah, you, you really need to try to talk to those guys and, 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 you know, I think it's, it's totally worth it, but don't just stop there, you know, take that information and then, you know, go, go to the next step, just, you know, trying to get in the country yourself if you can at all, you know, before the season. Yeah, that's good. Let's go ahead and hit some of the, let's call it the tactics, right? And we'll hit these from a, a categorical perspective. You know, you talk in the book about still hunting and ambush hunting and tracking. I want to break down, you know, how do you do those? Maybe when should you consider one over the other and really kind of dive deep and understand them better and kicking things off with still hunting. I mean, just talk about what it is first, because there's this idea Maybe when some guys here still hunting, they just hear walking and looking for deer with the rifle in your hand, right? But uh, you talk in the book that it's it's about more than that, and you really do have to slow down. You have to put the still and still hunting. So talk, just talk to us about still hunting. How is it effective? Uh, when do you use that type of strategy, and how is it best executed? Sure. Um, with, with still hunting, um, first of all, most guys hate it. And, um, I mean, I've heard those words. I hate still hunting. I'd much rather the glass. Oh, well, so would I, buddy. Trust me. So would I. But once those deer get out of summer mode, you know, so we get into October or even if it's a, maybe a September hunt or something, but there's a lot of hunters, um, they get pushed out of that open country. You can have 15 pair of Swarovski BTXs, Kawas. I mean, Frick, you can have the Hubble telescope focused on your mountain you ain't going to see that deer if he's in the trees you, you know until they put x-ray vision in those in those binoculars god forbid we we can't see them we got to go in where they are and um and again there's no formulas i understand you can sit back and watch a mountainside for four days and a buck finally comes out i i get all that i'm not against it i've even tried it in fact i'd rather do that because still hunting there's a lot of risk involved in still hunting you're in their bedroom Um, but sometimes it's all you're left with. That's, that's, that's why it's an important technique. And that's why it's not my favorite technique, you know, but, but sometimes, I mean, I can sit up on the knob for, you know, burn my whole week of vacation sitting on the knob. If that buck ain't coming out on one of these hillsides that I can see, um, you know, even if I got a two mile rifle, I I ain't going to kill him. And so, so, so still hunting, it's not just moving slowly through the woods. And I think that's why guys hate it. Because, and, and it's why I used to hate it. And, and, and I, gave a, I gave a definition in the book. And, and I'm, I'm really trying to test that definition. And, and, I, and I think I nailed it when I, when I put it out there. But, you know, I've listened to a lot of other hunters, listened to a lot of uh, big wood hunters in the, uh, you know, the, the northeastern part of the United States where that's the only technique they have, still hunting and, and tracking. They, they cannot see their animals no matter what they do because of the trees. And so I listen to those guys a lot. And the definition of still hunting, what I mean when I say still hunting, I'm not just talking about moving slow. You can move, move, you can be a snail 
and still never see a deer if you're not where the deer are. Um, you, 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 still hunting is, is moving slowly through the woods, trying to be as undetectable as possible. You know, open woods, you can move a little faster. Closed woods, you got to move slower. So it's not just about the speed, but it's about applying that technique where you either have fresh buck sign, previous buck sightings, um, and by buck sign, let's back up. That's tracks, rubs. Yes, move their rub. Um, they rub all fall. Um, uh, tracks, rubs, um, trails, you know, high odds areas, good, odd, good odds areas where, where bucks move in the cover. That's my definition of still hunting. But to just get out of the truck and start walking slow, you, you, you may do it perfectly all day long, the right cadence, 100 yards an hour or less. You may not even be where there's any deer. And that's why it can get frustrating because it can be like, gosh, man, I just, and still hunting, believe it or not, moving slow, it wears you out, you know, because you have to concentrate so hard. And, um, you know, you'll, you'll do about two days of it, but this is bogus. And, and I know that because I did. But as I found big bucks that I just couldn't catch out in the open over the years, and just finally got on their level and they got in their living room, I call it, and, and applied these techniques. I've killed a couple of them that I don't think could have been killed any other way. And, 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 and it's not a, it's not a high success rate either. It's not, I mean, you'll still hunt a lot before you kill a big buck, but if they're not coming out in the open, if they're out of that summer mode for whatever reason, I mean, what else are you going to do? Whistle and have them come to you. I mean, they don't bugle. You know, you, you got to go in there and, 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 and live with them per se. And then, you know, breaking down still hunting. I say this in my book, you know, I'm, I'm, everybody says they're ADHD, man. I got the papers from the therapist. I am diagnosed. <laughs> I made attention disorder, hy hyperactivity disorder. That's what, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder. That's, that's me. Okay. So I, I, to, to, to still hunt is very hard for me. It's hard for me to, to really slow down. I can slow down, but then it's hard for me to concentrate. My mind wanders you know, cause of my the whole attention deficit thing. But so I've kind of learned, I'm only good for about two, three hours of still hunting, but I've adapted that to my personality and to my, uh, my playbook, which is, I know a lot of mule deer country and I know the, 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 the core areas in that mule deer country where I'm most likely to catch a buck on his feet moving in the cover. So when I go still hunting, it is very purposeful. It's like, I know that hillside at the head of that creek drainage, that six or 700 yard circle. I saw a big buck there in 97. I've seen other big tracks there. And that guy from freaking Pennsylvania killed that big buck right at the top of that clearing. I remember. And so I'm, I'm going to that place and, you know, harnessing that, that disorder that I have for that two to three hours and, 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 and still hunting through there and it's paid off a couple of times is, mm. is, is what I'm getting at. And, and so I don't need to still hunt all day. I don't even want to still hunt all day. Maybe someone else with a different disposition than they could. And I'm not against that. Just make sure you're in not just deer country. You're in, you know, high odds, buck country where you're going to see these, where, where there's a good chance of seeing these deer. And, and that's, that's the, what I'm talking about when I mean still hunting. 
Yeah. So you say doing that for a few hours, and I think even without uh, clinically diagnosed ADHD, that's probably relevant to almost anybody. Because if you're doing still hunting right, like you said, you're moving slow, but it's honestly exhausting. Physically, mm-hmm. you're watching your step, and then mentally, you're just you should be 100 percent there. And if you're not, mm-hmm. you're not really still hunting. Um, mm-hmm. So if you talk about doing that for a few hours, how are you picking the time of day in terms of strategy there? And you know, how does it maybe change? But you going in morning, evening, midday. How are you making those decisions on when to actually execute that? Yeah, good question. I'm glad you brought that up because I wouldn't have thought about clarifying that. Well, first of all, you can do it all day, um, any time of the day. I mean, um, and um, I'm just kind of filing through my mind here. In um, in in about 98, well, in 95, I found this 35 inch typical buck on an OTC tag, and he was no cheaters. 35 wide hog uh net he kind of had shallow forks for how wide he was so he probably netted in the low 190s could have been a bookhead back then it, it was 195 to be all-time book he he was he was right up against that and um he lived on kind of a, a fuzzy timber covered mountain that was really hard to see deer and i just i sat in the openings where i can't remember how many flipping days i did and i didn't see him um, the, I saw other bucks though, even, even, even other pretty nice bucks. So over the next three or four years, I kind of narrowed it down where these bucks were hanging, um, and on the part of the mountain that they would use. And, you know, it was probably a half a square mile, maybe a, a square mile. And it was by, I, I wish I had a happy ending until could tell you I killed one of those bucks, but I didn't, but I felt like I was. I was the best hunter on that mountain. I was the only hunter who could kill a buck on purpose on that mountain. If it was going to happen is how I felt. Cause I still saw all those guys sitting out in the open and riding around and doing all that stuff. And I'm like, I'm in their bedroom. I see their tracks. I see their rubs. You know, I've, I've, I've almost got a couple in here and, and, and I'm answering your question. I promise. I had to, I had to get it out of my mind that I even needed a glass. So when in, in, in the mornings, you know, that gray light, that magic time, I was hanging on the edge of the cover, but by sunrise, I was in the cover. The only reason I was hanging on the edge in case they were, but by sunrise, I was in the cover and man, that was hard to do. That was hard to make myself go in there. But again, even though I didn't kill a buck tracks, I mean, I was, I was into bucks. And, and so in, in that place, I would do it early in the morning when I felt like they were on their feet. And I would do it um, later in the day, um, you know, like when, when I felt like the deer were active. Because that, that's part of it, too, is you can still hunt in thick cover. And if they're if they're bedded up under a big blowdown and you don't have snow to point you in the right direction where they might be, mm, you, you can be that snail. And you still ain't going to kill him because he's going to see you before you see him because he's, he's going to be obscure. It's just hard to spot him in their bed. And I'm not, I'm not even talking with binoculars. You don't have that stuff. You don't need binoculars. Your, your, your human eye is actually better than binoculars because you have that big wide field of view you, you, you just don't seem to be able to get the drop on them if they're truly bedded up and not moving um and so what you're hoping to do when you're in there is they get up and do the movement and that's what um that that's that's when the magic happens because those big bucks if i watch them out in the open man they they're different than all the other deer. 
You know, they, they walk slower, they look around more, they chew slower. I swear sometimes they're, they're not even chewing. They're just got their head down and I can see their eyes moving and their ears switching. They're just listening. You know, they're super, super alert, especially if they've been hunting at all. They get in the cover. It's, it's just like they let their hair down. You know, they put their jammies on. They're just walking around. You know, they'll get up at, they'll get up at 1130 and just go walking down a trail, you know, cause it's, it's obscured. They, they feel safe. You know, and it, 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 and that's what you're waiting for. That's why you want to be in there when when they get up and move. And um, and again, it's still it doesn't happen a lot. But you know, one buck hunter told me he was from southeast Idaho. He lived in was in the Great Buck Country. He goes, I'd rather be in there where they're at than out here on these open slopes where they're never going to be in in, in in shooting light. And man, that it, it made me mad when he told me that. But he was so right. He was so right. So at least if I'm in there doing that stuff and I've killed a couple of big ones that way. And, and that's the other thing too, when it happens, man, it's one of the most accomplished feats in hunting. It, it really is. You're going to, you're, you're going to feel like King for a day when it happens. Cause you're going to know that, man, that was the only way this buck could have been killed, you know, outside of the rut, outside of opening morning, you know, unless somebody just bumbles into it. And that's the only way that that buck could be killed on purpose. And so, so on your question, Mark, I do it at any times of the day. I think the deer are going to be up. Sometimes I have to exclude certain parts of the day. And as we get later into October, I can't really do it in the mornings because the ground is too frozen and I, I can't be quiet. And so, you know, sometimes I know there's a buck in there, but I don't go in there until the conditions are right. And, and, um, you know, the sun's, the sun's coming up and heating the forest floor and, and, and some days it never does, it, you know, there's some days, especially later in October, it's just so cold, you can't get quiet. So, you know, to switch to some of these other tactics, but, um, but anytime I can be quiet in there that I think they're on their feet that or could get up and be on their feet, that's, that's the best time to still hunt. How are you handling the wind in those situations? I mean, obviously if you're, you're in there and it's not doing what you're doing, what you want it to do, you're backing out uh, how how aggressive do you get with that or do you what's your kind of overall strategy well i have a whole chapter in my book called obeying the wind and that's mm. i'm always trying to obey the wind and then what by obeying the wind i mean i let the wind decide how to approach any certain situation that's all one of my number one considerations um it's not always possible and yeah. sometimes you get the wind perfect and, you know, I'm, I'm approaching an area say i'm going to still hunt this little quarter mile piece right here. I saw a good buck in there last year. There was a good buck out here this summer. He might be hiding in there. And I happen to know there's a deer trail that, that, that cuts diagonally through that. I want to get on that deer trail and I want to hunt. I want to still hunt through there. Um, however, my, if I go on this end of the, of the cover, I, I'm, I'm going to be blowing my wind right into where the deer could potentially be. So man, I need to hike a mile around the top and I need to drop, drop in on the top and, and come down. But then I get in there and get some funky thermal or something, and all of a sudden the wind's swirling, and I, I then I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, I, yeah, they could be smelling me. They, they, I did my best. I still keep, yeah. I don't abandon it. You know, you don't abandon. It, that's my question. I guess do you abandon it when the wind's swirling? Not if you... I'm in the deep and nasty because there's not really much I can do. I, if I yeah. uh, if I abandon, I'm just gonna make a bunch of noise getting out of there. I might as well continue doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and, and 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 so the way I look at it is is I just lost one of the things that was in my favor, but if I'm in there and it's quiet, I've still got that in my favor. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, 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 um, uh, so, so always think about the wind, always try to try to, you know, obey it as I say. 
but it's, you know, you're not the wins master. It's your yeah. master. Sometimes you're just going to, you know, get the cards dealt to you that you get. You gotta Are you crazy anal on the scent spray and getting your scent reduced before you go in there? Washing clothes and things like that? Or is that something? No, you worry about? Th- that yeah. time of year, it's a damn cold. And it's just so hard to manage all those clothes. Archery season, I am. You know, we're not really, we're not really spotting or we're not really uh, still hunting during archery. But by the way, that's one of the lowest um, percentage of success techniques is still hunting with a bow in, in the cover. It, it, you know, you just yeah. very hard to kill a big deer doing that. Sometimes I still have to do it because you know, it's the only way I can find them. But, 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 but in archery season, yeah, you know, you're wearing less clothes. You know, I, I, I know, you know, I'm going to be close to them. So I'm always trying to manage. I don't do any of the scent spray, but you know, try to wear clean clothes, wash them in the Creek. I do all that stuff. Um, but no, when I get later in there, it's just so flipping hard and gosh, try to control all that scent. I'm still going to be back in the tent throwing, throwing logs on the fire and yeah. burning freaking hot dogs on the stove. I mean, I stink is what I'm, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. And so, so yeah, you know, if you can wash your clothes before the hunt, that's probably the best, the best you're going to be able to do. But when I say you're wearing so many clothes, I've got a base layer on. I've got a, a, a mid layer. So, you know, like maybe a button up Merino first light shirt I've got on or, or a pullover. And then I've got a, uh, you know, another insulating layer on top of that. Heck I might even have another layer on top of that. That that's another, I'm glad you bring that up too, Steve, because that's something else about still hunting, it, especially late. It's hard to stay warm. You're not generating any heat. Mm-hmm. And so that can lim- uh, limit how much time you can, you can do it too. And, and, um, you know, sometimes I'm the heaviest dressed guy in the woods because you know, I'm glassing so much and sitting and then, and then I'm still hunting so much. I'm not hiking that much. You know what, what I mean? I feel like if I'm hiking a lot for mule deer that I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing it right. I shouldn't have to hike a lot. I should have small areas where I know the deer are, I should be able to still hunt those areas and or glass them. And so, so I wear a lot of clothes and that's why the whole stink thing to me is like, I mean, gosh, what am I going to do? Go back and to camp and flip and wash, you know, 19 garments. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Makes sense. So you mentioned in the book, some bucks can only be killed by slowing down to a dead stop. And so talking about ambush hunting, uh, you know, you define ambush hunting as well in the book of an act or instance of line concealed so as to attack by surprise. So when we talk about ambush hunting, we're talking about truly slowing down, as you said, to a dead stop, just like picking that spot. Um, you mentioned lying in wait for a buck or bucks you only suspect are there based on previous sightings, tracks, rubs, and or trails or terrain features. So ambush hunting is truly, I mean, I have a Midwest whitetail background, so I'm like, oh yeah, I get it, right? Like you're picking that funnel, you're picking the ambush spot. That's where you're, you know, putting a blind, being on the ground, putting a tree stand, whatever. Um, but yeah, talk about ambush hunting. When do you go to that tactic? Uh, again, you know, maybe time of year, type of country, all those variables that kind of lean you towards ambush hunting for a mule deer. Okay. So ambush hunting, if you think about it, it's a lot like still hunting, except for now you stop. So with still hunting, you're taking in, you know, all that sign, you're reading all the sign and like, okay, this is a good place to still hunt. You know, I can manage this with a couple of hours. Um, but with, um, ambush hunting, you're coming to a complete stop. You can't cover as much ground. So therefore your sign has to be better. It has to be what you just mentioned, you know, something that's funneling deer through maybe a saddle, maybe a certain hillside, um, you know, it, 
could even be a little bit in the open too. It doesn't have to necessarily be heavy cover, like, you know, still hunting. And then by the way, still hunting is not always heavy cover either. Cause sometimes you still through a patch of heavy cover and then you come to a meadow and you look across it and you can see 600 yards. And my gosh, there's a big buck standing right there, but I wouldn't have been able to get him if I wasn't still hunting. So there's all these little overlaps and nuances and everything, but with ambush hunting, um, if, if, if the conditions, let's just say the conditions are, are noisy like what we talked about a minute ago steve then i can't really still hunt it so now i've got an ambush on it and so this is where i'm really you know pushing all my chips to the center of the table and saying okay i'm going to make my very best guess on when and where this buck or you know i'm not always hunting a buck that i've scouted or or bucks in this area are going to show up but, but man you almost got to really know your country to, to pull it off um, you know, have to know where bucks have been killed, seen, or just very highly likely buck country, you know, avalanche shoots with, uh, trails in them. Um, as we get up into the rut, um, areas with rubs, that big Montana buck I killed about 10 years ago, you know, I was, I was still, that was still hunting, but it could have been ambushed too, um, in an area that simply had a lot of rubs and tracks. And so, um, with, uh, but with ambush hunting, you're putting yourself in a position, you know, the, the wind is super important, um, all that stuff, um, and, and, and hoping these bucks will get up and move. And the reason I say some bucks can only be killed that way is because um, you ha- we are so stinking noisy. I don't even think we realize it. We are so noisy, even when we're trying to be quiet. We are such a foreign um, force to the forest is, is, is the best way to put it that, that I don't think we realize just how alien we are to the forest, the way we move, the way we breathe, the way we sniff, the way we, you know, all, all the stuff that humans do. I mean, that's, you think about the woods, you know, 12 months a year, there might be three weeks of the year that those noises are even present. And, you know, the cadence that we walk at. And so if you can find a good place to ambush bucks, you've just eliminated, eliminated that. Um, you know, not long as you're not wearing a loud coat and every time you move against the tree, it doesn't make that a scratchy sound that they never hear, you know, any other time. So they know that's gotta be a hunter. If you can eliminate all that stuff, you're putting some things in your favor that a big buck cannot overcome. If you got the wind in your favor and you're not silhouetted and you're not making any noise, he, he can't overcome that. God didn't give him anything there. And I don't believe in this whole sixth sense and you know you know mule deer feel yeah I, I don't believe in any, any of that hocus pocus um they're, they're 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 physical beings just like we are you know they're, they're they have hyper senses I, I do agree with that but you know when you're silent and and, and you got the wind <laughs> i've been very close to some very you know mature deer and it, it I, mean, I i guarantee if you talk to randy Oma, he'll tell you the same thing you know if you can you, you can overcome those senses, then man, you can, you can get, you can get very close to them. And, um, so ambush hunting, you know, I killed my whitest buck and my oldest buck ever by ambush hunting. And I think it was the only way that he could have been killed. He lived on a, uh, really steep, uh, hillside that you could only see the hillside from literally a couple of miles away. All right. And so, you know, you couldn't shoot him. Well, maybe somebody could, but I couldn't shoot him from over there. So I, I, I had to get in there. It was hot and dry. It was not a good place to steel hunt. Oh, another thing about steel hunting, if the hill is so steep that you can't be quiet, that, that sometimes that'll 
that'll take away your effectiveness because you know you just can't even take a step without slipping or you know sliding and you know you're just making too much noise well that was one of those hillsides so i set an ambush at the top of the hillside and you know to my left was kind of you know classical typical open deer country in fact i got there shortly after daylight so you know, there's a chance he could go out there it was like the fifth day of the season and um but then for the most part everything to my right you know, there wasn't any more openings. There wasn't any openings bigger than a school bus. And most of it was just, you know, um, 50 yards of visibility there. Oh, I might see a hundred yards right there. Can't see anything over there, but just good deer feed. And, you know, just from scouting over the years, I, I, I had been on that hillside before. I knew it had big tracks on it over the years. Um, I'd seen big bucks out in that opening open country before that was adjacent to it. So I just sat up there. And I thought, you know, it, it's hot, it's dry. I can't still hunt it. You know, I can't glass it from anywhere, but right here. And I just got to sit here. And, and sure enough, man, he showed up. Um, it took about two hours. And, and, and just by the way he was moving and everything, guys, is, you know, a couple other little bucks had fed out and, um, on this little, this little bench that was about 100 yards below me. And I was like, oh, my gosh, there's two, two deer there. I'd been there about an hour. And they, this was October 10th or so. That's when the little bucks are fighting a lot and they were just kind of pushing each other around. I was watching them for a while and, you know, they typical two, three-year-old bucks, you know, they'd fight a little while fighting even makes noise. You know, I don't think big bucks like that either. You know, you can hear their antlers clanking and then they, you know, walk a big circle around each other, just acting like young dumb bucks, you know, just and a little kid could have seen them with those little plastic binoculars, you know, they're just, just easy to see him. Well, I was watching him for a long time and back in the cover behind him, I could see the outline of a deer and it took me a second to even decide if it was a deer. And, um, I fit, I think I had, I think I had a pair of 15s, um, or 16 power pentaxes laying on the ground. I think they were closer than my, maybe my eights were down in my coat. I don't really remember, but I grabbed those and I put them on them. I'm like, is that even a deer? And, 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 and in that few uh, 30 seconds or so, I just watched how he moved. I mean, you know, we're talking, take a step, one step, you know, like moves a deer, like seven inches and look around. And, and as he looked around, I saw, I saw two big cheaters off of, twin cheaters off of each antler. And, and, and when you look at a deer from the side, it's kind of t- hard to tell how wide they are. And, but I could tell when he turned, Oh man, that's a big deer. That might even be that deer. And, uh, you know, I killed him, but my whole point in telling you that story is those little bucks out there running around, you know, doing the regular thing. Um, yet this buck, he was so careful that even if I would have been still hunting, I, I'm not so sure I'd have got the drop on him because, you know, he was moving so slow in that cover. And this was about, by the way, about eight thirty nine 9 o'clock in the morning. So I think they had, they had done their morning feed, you know, somewhere. And then they were coming out maybe just to get a few more bites. And when I say coming out, just, you know, heavy shadows, not open country. Only place you could have glassed them was from, from right there. And so, you know, there's, there's kind of a story right there of, of, I think that I don't think he could have been killed any other way. Um, I learned ambush hunting, believe it or not, from some pretty young unskilled hunters over the years, because I noticed that some of these guys, they didn't have freaking binoculars, you know, crappy rifles, frick, they didn't even seem to know what they were doing, but they were killing mature bucks. And this happened with, you know, at least two or three different guys. And I kind of put it together after a while. I'm like, the reason they're killing bucks is because they don't know how to hunt any other way 
than go sit down in the woods. That just made sense to him. But I'm just going to sit here. You know, grandpa said, you know, just let the, the animals do their things. And, you know, they're not even big buck hunters, but they end up killing big bucks. And that, that was that was what kind of helped me start putting it together. that These guys couldn't kill a big buck in a bucket. And yet they just they just strolled into this OTC unit, and, you know, killed a top end buck. And when I get talking to them, they were just sitting still watching deer country and they were patient enough to sit there long enough to do it. And so anyways, that's my long winded answer to to what ambush hunting is and, and how it can be effective and why I think only certain bucks can be killed by it. Mm. I like it. It's uh, it, it, kind of like still hunting. It can be very boring, right? Like there's no uh, excitement to it in terms of the technique, but when it all comes together, then you feel the excitement and it's it's a rush, man. Absolutely, dude. Absolutely. So I just, if I was going to be try to ambush out and I try to every year, you know, I'm just looking for for areas that are, you set up with whitetail, you know, something that's funneling them. It's, but a lot of times it's just, just areas I know that, you know, I, I can get in there and I can sit down and I can see a little bit and I'm just going to let the deer do, do the moving. And, yeah. and, and I try to do it obviously at times that they're going to get up and move, you know, and that's why, that's why sometimes, man, it's just so hard to pull yourself out of that open country at daylight. You know, it's, 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 it's even hard for me. But, you know, if, if, if it, I just I just know that my odds of seeing a buck over three years old out in this open country after opening morning, you know, short of a good snowstorm or the rut or whatever. I mean, there's times they go out there. Don't get me wrong. I just know that nah, he's already in the he's already in the trees in there. He's feeding and, you know, he ain't got a care in the world because he knows he's safe and that's where I need to be. And so that's that's what I'm usually trying to set up an ambush hunt. How far are you trying to see when you get into those trees? I mean, obviously that you know, it's going to be dictated by the, the brush and the vegetation and all that mm-hmm. stuff. But if you can only see, you know, are you trying to build a, at least see 50, 75, hundred yards or is it, you know, is what's, what's too thick, I guess is the question. And that's a good question. It can be too thick. And I want to make sure I'm not, you know, conjuring up, you know, romantic images in someone's mind of, oh man, I know a really thick spot, you know, and you have to get down on your hands and knees and crawl. And, you know, yeah. and I've seen big bucks in there. Well, it can't be that thick because you can't be quiet. And, yeah. and, and, you know, you, you can't even really ambush in a spot like that because, you know, I can't, you know, I can't have five years, five yards of visibility on an ambush or I, my chance of ca- catching a buck that close to me are so small, you know, unless, unless you just happen to know a trail or something that they walk down. But I think that's what make that's what separates mule deer from whitetails is they're not, they're not tied to those trails like a whitetail would be. Um, and so Steve, um, the, the way I would answer it is just by experience. It seems like in the areas where I've seen bucks on their feet moving at, you know, um, beyond daylight and before dark, you know, at hours of the day when I can still hunt in there or ambush hunt, that I usually have anywhere from 25 yards to a hundred yards of visibility. And, and I think that's where they feel comfortable too. And it's not that they won't go and, you know, gosh, there's some quakey patches in Southeast Idaho that, you know, you, it's like getting tangled in a spider web. I mean, you bounce off it when you try to walk into it. It's not that they don't go in that, but there has to be a trail for them or something for them to be able to get around that. Mm -hmm. And so it totally can be too thick, but I think when they have that kind of 25 yards to a hundred yards of visibility, they feel good about moving in it too. Number one, they can get around, but number two, you know, they don't want to walk around a bush and there's a cat laying there. You know, they want to have a little bit of, 
little bit of visibility. So, so that's a super question, Steve, because I don't want people to think it's like super, super thick. Um, I did a video for rock slide, um, in, in 2015. Um, and I, I wish I could remember what it was called. It's on our YouTube channel. And I just did a lot of filming that day while I was in the woods. It was one of those, uh, I had hunters coming in town because I'm an outfitter too. So, um, I just could only hunt opening morning. I had to get those guys laid out and then I could come back and, um, I'm looking to see if I can find it right now, but I'll just keep talking. Um, and, and I, I, I still hunted in that, that cover that morning. And there, there, there's a reason I did is because uh, about three years before that, I saw a, a whopper buck, um, um, living around that cover. I'd seen him in the summer and then we got some snow on like the second day of the season. And I saw him feeding in there and I, and I tried everything. I tried to get him and track him. There's too many other deer. I just didn't kill him. But like three or four years later, I was still hunting that country because, um, I, um, I just knew that if, if he went there, other big bucks are going to go there. And, um, uh, you know, a lot of the, a lot of these things I'm telling you guys, I wish I had like a success story and an anecdote for every single one of them. Oh yeah, I did this. And then I killed the buck. Some of this stuff, you guys, is what I said before. I just know in my gut, I'm the only person who can kill this buck on this mountain because I see where everybody else is. They're not even where these bucks are. Um, and, 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 and Steve, related to your question, that was one of those places where you have about 25 yards to 100 yards of visibility and something else I want to add in there. It's, it's roll, it's rolling, not smooth rolling, but it's got a lot of ups and downs in it. You know, little, little places where the snow's piled up and pushed out a 300 yard mini avalanche shoot in the timber. And then, you know, it's got a bench on it. You know, it's, it's, it's not just flat, smooth country. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, and bucks like that because, you know, they can, they, 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 they like the up and down because it gives them a little bit of, of, of concealment and, and, you know, they can walk around and, you know, they're, they're like us. They like to walk up to the edge of something and just poke their head over it and look around. I see them do it all the time. And so if it's a flat, smooth slope like that, they don't have that advantage. Does that make, does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So anyways, that just can't, can't be too thick, a little bit of up and down and, um, you know, wind in your favor, that kind of stuff. We are, uh, man, covering so much good ground. I want to hit tracking too, Robbie. You mentioned it previously and kind of talked about the conditions, uh, ideally with some snow, some fresh snow, not too crunchy, all that. Um, what I'm curious, like to get into tracking a little bit more, what can you learn from the tracks themselves? So, you know, not just finding a deer track, but what are you actually looking at when you see tracks in terms of uh, size and stride length. You're trying to pick apart, you know, specifics about deer or what deer might be moving through the country based on the tracks. Do you go to that level? Yeah, absolutely, dude. I don't want to just track any deer. Um, the, you know, the best tractors in the country are the Northwest, Northeast whitetail big woods guys. Um, and part of it is just because that's the only way they can see animals. They have to follow their tracks. It's just too thick. And, um, and, and you should study those guys. Everybody should go sign up for the Big Woods podcast, Hal Blood. You know, listen to those guys talk about that. There's a lot there a mule deer hunter can learn. Um, but they um, they have the seasons that allow them to 
um, uh, have snow. We don't always, you know, they, they can hunt during the rut. They have to let them hunt during the rut or they couldn't kill any deer, you know, but, um, they're always talking about the, um, that you gotta be following the right deer. And those guys are in gentle country compared to the West for the most part, you know, their, their country is gentle. I can just tell by how they're talking because you know, they're like, Oh, you know, I, I tracked this buck eight miles. Oh, frick. Steve, could you imagine trying to track a buck eight miles in the upper <laughs> drainages of unit 39? Yeah. No, I mean, you no. would die. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't cover physically cover eight miles. I, and remember, I'm not talking about that nice little trail you walked up to get to camp. I'm talking about the way a buck uses that country. You know, he'll go straight up that freaking 10,000 foot peak and he'll drop a thousand feet off of the other side. And then he'll, He'll cut along at that elevation level for three miles, and then he's going to turn around and come right back up that nine thousand foot peak. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so you got to You got to be tracking the right deer. You know, you'll just wear yourself out. And so back to what you asked, Mark. Absolutely, man. I I don't just follow any deer track. Um, um, I'm looking at um, you know, the, the the size of the track. The shape is is even more is just as important. Put it that way. I'm looking at all all of that stuff to number one, to figure out, you know, do I want to invest, you know, a couple of hours of my day or, or you know, maybe a little longer than that. And just the physical exertion it's going to take to keep up with this buck. Um, do, do I want to do that? And that's going to be decided by, um, 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 by those things I was talking about. And so the first thing I'm looking for is, um, uh, a, a wide, a track that's nearly as wide as it is long. Um, a, a doe can actually have, I think an older doe, um, that's not living in rocky country can actually have a longer track than a big buck. Um, and I, I can only guess is, I can, this is just a complete guess, just pulling it out of my ear that it's because bucks gravitate towards rocky or rougher country. So their, their hooves tend to wear down and they, they tend to have a really blocky front hoof. It could also be that a buck carries his weight in his chest. And, you know, his neck and his antlers were a doe, you know, they're, they're a little hippier, you know, they're, and, and so a buck, maybe it's just, he's got all that weight on the front end. So God gives him broader hooves. I don't know, but I know that I'm looking for, um, a, a, a track that's shaped like a calf elk about that size. And it's, it's, it's going to be pretty blocky on the end. It's probably going to be over three inches long, three and a quarter is even better but it's probably going to be 2.75 wide too. I mean, it's going to be nearly as wide as it is long. And then you just have to follow the track far enough to figure out what's the front hoof and what's the back hoof. The back hoofs are smaller. Um, and, and, um, if you go to the uh, rock slide live hunts and look at that live muzzleloader hunt I did last year, and you go to the very end of the live hunt where I was butchering the deer, I have pictures of the front track and the rear track all that buck and that buck was a five-year-old buck had a good track and i show the difference between the front track and the rear track you got to figure those out because the rear track is not going to be as blocky it's going to look more like like a a younger buck or a, a doe it's going to be a little pointier kind of the classic deer track that we all think of when we think of tracks it's going to be that way where a big buck track is it's it's his front track is it's, man, it almost doesn't even look like a deer track sometimes so you it took a while for me to realize, oh, that's a big buck is what that is. So you have to follow that far enough to go, okay, there's his front track. That is blocky. It's probably over three inches long. It's wide. Okay, I'm on a mature deer. Um, um, I, let me throw a little caveat in there. I think tracking is not as popular amongst mule deer hunters besides the rough country that they live in. 
is that, you know, we, we live where we can see the deer probably maybe somehow with binoculars from a far, far away. And so when you're looking at their track, there's no guarantee of how big their antlers are, but I kind of gave up on worrying about all that record book stuff, you know, years ago when I just realized how few record book bucks are out there and that, you know, I'm just looking for big deer. I really am. And if they've got a big track, they're going to be four five, six, seven, eight years old and their rack is going to be proportionally big. Yeah. Maybe it's not going to score like it should, you know, the second oldest buck I ever killed weighed over 300 pounds, giant track, 24 inch rack. You know, I mean, I, I, I get the reasons why some people are like, well, tracking, the problem is you don't know what they got on their heads. I get it. But I'm, I'm just not that picky because I know as an OTC guy primarily, or just, you know, being able to draw stuff that you can get once in a while, I can't, I can't be that snooty and just say, Oh, my buck needs to be 197 and change. You know I mean? I, I want to shoot one of those, but I can't always read the track and tell that. So I'm going to, I'm going to follow that big track. The, uh, uh, Mark, you had asked about, um, stride length. Um, st- a, a big buck needs to have at least a 24 inch stride length. I've got 12 inch, uh, feet. Um, so I can put two feet together and I need to have 12 inches between tracks, but you got to be careful. That has to be on, you know, a flat ground walking along the same contour line and at a normal walk. He can't be, he can't be moving fast. He can't be feeding. So, you know, that's just one piece of the puzzle with tracking, but I look, you know, on a 24 inch one or better, I've seen them up to 30, which is just mind freaking blowing a buck with a 30 inch stride, you know, and that's like a, a six foot seven man, you know, but they're out there. I've seen them with my own eyeballs. And so I'm looking, looking for the stride length, uh, the, the, the track size. And then if I can get an idea of how much the buck weighs, which you can tell again by that front track and, and, and how, how deep he's, he's seeding into the, into the, to the, whether it's the snow or, or mud and dirt can be harder unless it's deep dirt. Um, how deep is he sinking into that? And the gold standard is if there's other deer there, you can kind of look at his track and look at the other ones and get an idea. This buck weighs more. Um, and, um, but sometimes they're alone. And so you're just, you just have to make an educated guess. And that's why I always go back to the, to the, to the puzzle. Um, because it's just so many times we're just trying to come up with a formula for something and as, as humans, that's what we do. It's how we solve problems. But it, it, with tracking, it's, not you're not you're not always going to have everything you need so you need to work with what you have so maybe it's a big track but i can't really tell if it's a deep track well i'm just not going to worry about that i'm going to figure out another way to see this buck you know it is and and, oh sure enough man that's a that's a three-year-old buck he just kind of has a rounded off track and he's and he's dinky i you know i saw him his his body's light you know and 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 sometimes i think as as trackers and hunters I think we just think of, you know, all bucks are the same, you know, body wise or whatever, but, but, you know, well, I weigh 180 pounds. My cousin weighs 220. You can totally tell the difference between us. Absolutely. I mean, the most unskilled eyeball in the world could see us walking down the street and go, okay, that guy's smaller than that guy. We, that's a 40 pound difference. Well, shouldn't we be able to tell a 40 pound difference in a deer? Well, we can. And, and, and so that's what I'm saying is by, by, by tracking, sometimes you can see that in a track or if you actually get to see them, You'll, you'll say, oh my, my gosh, that deer looks like a freaking horse, you know? And, and so I'm going with my, my puzzle analogy here. That's just things I'm kind of trying to put together there, you know, big track, you know, I caught sight of him as I was tracking, 
his freaking butt is looks like the rear end of a steer. You know, this is a big deer. This is this deer is, is worth tracking. And and so I yes, Mark, I take all that stuff into consideration before I set out on a track. One one thing you mentioned in the book I was pretty fascinated by, uh would love to hear more about is how they bed in relation to their track. And you talked about how they use their back trail essentially. Can you elaborate on that? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And, um, and again, not a formula, but it's kind of a, like a likely scenario that if a buck, the kind of bucks we're talking about four years old and older, they have been followed since they were babies. And we all forget that they've been, I saw a coyote chasing a fawn a couple, uh, like a week ago, you know, one of these with well, this year's fawns and, uh, the fawn fawn kicked his ass by the way, got away. But um, they've been followed since they were just babies. And so we're not the only ones that are following them. You know, cats, you know, bobcats, um, coyotes, you know, bears, all, all that stuff is, is just following deer. And so you start getting to be, you know, four years old as a deer, you know, hey, I can't just go lay down and sleep under that tree. There's been too many times I've woke up face to face to a coyote, you know, and I didn't even know he was coming. So they consider the wind when they lay down. And, um, you know, I've had some writers like Walt Prothero, just, he just calls it a button hook. You know, they just kind of, they'll walk along and then they'll make a little button hook on the end. So like a J on their tracks, you're looking to track from above and, and, and they make a little button hook so that they can, um, be watching their back trail. Does that make sense? If you make a little, mm-hmm. little button hook, now you can see where, where your tracks were. And I think that they try to do the same thing with the wind. They try to lay down where the wind is blowing from their track to their nose. And, and maybe they don't do it every single time. And I'm not, and, and, and maybe not, but you know, that's, if, if he's laying where he can see his track and he's laying where he can smell his track, do, do you think that ups his odds of catching you know, a, a bear walking along there, sniffing the ground? Mm. It does, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so they're going to, they're going to do that. And so, but what I've noticed is when I, when I start tracking them and they know I'm tracking them, which this is guys, by the way, I'm an amateur tracker. I really think I am. There's so much to learn in tracking. There's so many layers. And every time I peel one back, I feel like, man, there's, there's 40 more levels to go. Um, and so I don't want to make it sound like I've been a really successful tracker. I have killed a couple of good bucks that way. I'm going to talk about a subset of tracking here in just a minute. You know, right now we're talking about following a track and killing the deer. Um, and, you know, that's what most people conjure up in their head when we talk about tracking is I'm going to pick up a track. There's a deer at the end of this, this track and I'm going to kill him. Um, that's the gold standards. That's the number one. That's what we want to do, but it doesn't always happen. But um, if, if I, when I start tracking a buck, I've noticed if he figures out I'm behind him, that's why I know I'm an amateur tracker because a lot of them do, then he will really start pulling out all the stops and he will start making uh, a button hook when he lays down and he will lay down in places where he can really see his back trail. I remember about a 185 to a 195 buck in Wyoming. I was tracking. I didn't pre-scouting. That's why I don't really know what his score was. And um, I got a couple of good looks at him, but I never could get my rifle to my shoulder um, when I would jump him. Um, and, and that's what he was doing was 
he would at first he was easy to track. You know, when I when I when I saw him with my naked eyes at first, and a lot of times that's how you pick up a good track. Everybody, I want to get that in there too. It's not just that you're walking through the forest where you can't see any deer. It's like no, you look across the basin. But there's a big buck standing right there at the edge of the timber. Oh crap, he's a shooter. You know, you can't get a shot at him. He's too far. and makes it into the trees. Flip, you go over there and you get on his track. You know that happens as often as just picking up a cold track. You know, I'm riding down the trail. Flip, there's a big buck track right there. Um, and, and so that's what had happened with this buck. I, I had seen him below me in an avalanche shoot. Um, uh, I screwed up, rode a horse up to the edge. I should have never done that. I should have snuck up there and peeked over the edge, but he took off into the timber. Wasn't too scared. And I know he wasn't too scared because he probably sees guys on, I mean, the Wyoming range, go ride a horse in the Wyoming range. Every, I mean, deer probably name the horses. There's, there's, you know, it doesn't really worry them. They just know like, I kind of need to get out of this. And so I went down there and I got on his track you know big track all other stuff and, and um i didn't track that buck 500 yards dude and i almost killed him in his bed but i was sloppy i i wasn't confident that it was gonna work and when he started meandering back and forth which is a great sign they're gonna bed very few bucks just walk in a straight line and lay down you know no they're you know they're like us when we go to our easy chair you know we go get our cocoa we get our magazine you know and we <laughs> we lay down you know we think about well they they take a few bites you know they they're probably considering the wind a little bit when they're when, when when they're meandering like that and they're looking for a place to bed looking for somewhere where they can watch their back trail well he did all that and i didn't slow down enough and i walked past him and he was off to my left <laughs> guys like 40 yards you I know mean, i was right in his living room I mean, he let me ride up on him but it's because he, he didn't know I was following him yet. And, and he actually bedded and he was bedded under a spruce, you know, it, it, put it this way. It was the only time all day I tracked this buck like six or seven hours. The only time all day I had a clear shot at him and I screwed it up. Well, every time after that, when he would bed, he would move into the thicker stuff. Um, he would do that button hook, um, you know, get the wind in his favor and, or he would bed, or he could see a long ways. And um, when I when I finally quit tracking him, it was just getting dark. And I was just exhausted. Just, I mean, you know, Wyoming range, probably, you know, switched 3,000 vertical feet tracking him, at least 2,000, you know, up and down, up and down. And it's not that he would go from the top of the mountain to the bottom. He didn't, you know, but they just the way they use the terrain. I was just freaking exhausted. And I, and I come to the edge of a meadow. And when I say a meadow, it's, you know, it's on a, 25 degree slope. So it was steep and it had all that kind of up and down stuff we're, we're talking about that they like. And I'm like, you know, this is a freaking good place for him to, to bed, but I just think it's too open. I remember thinking that it's just, it's just too open. You know, he, this is more like a feed area. And so I took about three steps out into the meadow and I heard him up in the timber above me and I didn't see him. And, and, and I got up there and he had bedded in that meadow. He had just bedded back maybe three to five yards into the cover just a little bit. And, you know, when he come out of his bed, you know, he was eating up the real estate. I, you know, his first, his first tracks were 20 feet from his bed. You know, this buck was, you know, like probably the fourth time I jumped him that day, you know, he was, he was on a, on, on, on edge. And so I went back and I got in his bed and I just kind of sat down and I looked around and I'm like, Oh, frick, he could see that entire meadow. I mean, he, he baited me right in you know, and, <laughs> and he knew exactly what to do. I'm going to bring this guy right here below me or whatever he thought I was, you know? Um, and, and I'm going to see him and, you know, so anyways, I'm going on and on, Mark, I hope there's, there's good stuff for your listeners coming no, out of this. Great. That, 
that 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 yes, they are very very deliberate on on where they bed and and you know you gotta you gotta put all that stuff together to to ever have a chance at them. That's good. Robbie, there, uh, there's a lot in there. There's so much that's helpful, um, for guys. And, you know, especially as you get into these later season opportunities, as we've said, there is a lot of talk about just glassing, um, and a lot of talk about the early season stuff. So it's fun to learn about what else is out there, things to try, things to look for, things to learn. I appreciate you sharing the time with us. And, uh, I think we need to get you back before it's another 200 plus episodes like we did between these last two episodes. So thank you so much for the time. Yeah, let's do it, man. Where can, uh, guys, we mentioned the book is on Amazon um, from you, and that's Hunting Big Mule Deer. Any other resources you want to point guys to or just let folks know about? Because I know you got Rock Slide and some scouting services and more things going on as well. My blog, my blog on Rock Slide, just rockslide.com, R-O-K, slide.com. Go there, look on the top. You'll see it says Rock Blog, R-O-K, blog. That's me. And that's where, that's where I, I publish all my mule deer content. You know, and sometimes I'll go a month or two without putting something on there, but you know, then I'll get on a, get, get some time in my schedule and I can really start putting on there what I'm thinking about. You know, yesterday was about, you know, this, this buck moon that's coming in July. Everybody should go read that. It's kind of a marker for me of what's going on this time of year. You know, last week I was talking about, um, uh, what was last week? Um, um, I'm looking at it right now. Uh, mule deer statistics. So, um, uh, you know, the statistics I, I, I track when I'm looking at different mule deer units, you know, before that, I was, um, big buck hunters can't be too nostalgic. I had that article on there. Just go read it, see what that's about. Um, you know, big bucks on winter range year round. I mean, all the, all the topics that go through my mind, I, I, I try to blog on. So that's really the very best place to keep up with me. And then plus if I, you know, if I ever do another book, you know, I'm going to take each one of those blog posts and I'm going to expand on them and I'm put anecdotes in them, more pictures, you know, stuff like that. So, so that's really the best place. And, um, you know, hope, hope to see you guys over there. Yeah, no, that's great. Having, uh, had the book now and I've not only read it when I received it, which was a couple of years ago, but have gone back to it. I'd highly recommend it. And uh, yeah, listeners go check out those resources and Robbie, thanks again for sharing with us. Hey, thanks guys. Well, that's a wrap guys. Don't forget to check out the link below for Robbie's book and also Robbie's blog that he mentioned, which is over at rock slide. Thank you so much as always for tuning in. Please tell a friend about the show or recommend it to someone that could be helped by the content in this show. And you can also contact us via email to podcast at exomountaingear.com.